Hello, and welcome to Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum for 90.3 The Core. I'm your host, James, and tonight we're talking about free speech on campus and also specifically anti-BDS laws that are spreading around the country, it seems like. Um, So this past Sunday, the Highland Park Public Library held a reading of the children's book P is for Palestine by author Golbarg Bashi. The reading was originally supposed to take place in May, um, but was rescheduled after both local and national pro-Israel organizations began attacking the Highland Park Library and the author, accusing the library of promoting anti-Semitism and forcing the library to postpone the reading over safety and crowd concerns. The rescheduled reading was met by over 100 protesters standing outside the library, calling Bashi and her book anti-Semitic and hateful. In the weeks leading up to the reading, pro-Israel legal group Zacher Legal Institute sent a letter to the Highland Park Library arguing that the group supporting the reading promoted anti-Semitism, and since the library apparently receives federal funding, it could be in violation of the anti-discrimination provisions of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of race and national origin. The threat of litigation from Zacker and other organizations could make this a truly watershed moment for public libraries across the U.S. and their ability to remain open forums for free speech. While Highland Park Mayor Gail Brill-Mittler allowed the reading to occur, she came out forcefully against the event, posting on social media that, quote, a thoughtful, respectful adult discussion of the Palestinian plight And the rightful existence of the Jewish state of Israel is the correct format for such global and provocative subjects. The reading of a politically charged book to five and six-year-olds in a public library is not. In response to the postponement of the readings, a coalition of at least a dozen local organizations circulated a petition demanding that the library hold the hearing. The petition said, quote, Fortunately, this McCarthyite campaign has only boosted support for boycott, divestment, and sanctions, or BDS. Moreover, mainstream media is finally giving voice to those, including a growing number of Jews, who challenge not only Israel's occupation of the West Bank, but the entire Zionist regime. Indeed, the call to cancel the Highland Park book reading is a tacit concession that, having lost the moral argument, apartheid Israel's enablers have no recourse but to silence pro-Palestinian voices, including authors of children's books. A week from today, the Highland Park Borough Council is expected to pass a resolution that explicitly condemns the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against the state of Israel. In addition, the resolution is expected to include a condemnation of language that questions the basis of the state of Israel and its right to exist. The controversy in Highland Park has escalated into a national-level debate around libraries, laws, and language. But an L-word that seems to be consistently left out of this conversation is liberation, and how fights like these affect the prospects for justice and self-determination for the Palestinian people. Tonight, we are joined by Ahan Sikri of Rutgers Students for Justice in Palestine to discuss what challenges like the ones in Highland Park and at the state level in New Jersey mean for organizers and activists fighting for the Palestinian cause. Ahan, welcome. Thanks for having me. So just what was your initial reaction to the controversy surrounding um, the P is for Palestine reading? Um, 
it was see nothing surprises me anymore about this kind of stuff but when i first heard about the book i was actually quite excited and i thought it was really just adorable and cute um yeah i think children especially like within the palestinian diaspora um are really affected by like the media like narrative that is going around today so like for them to have a children's book that is for them um was was beautiful to me um but i was not surprised about the controversy surrounding that i think that um those that want to silence the palestinian voices will do it in any manner of way even if it's for children mm-hmm. um so yeah, that was my initial reaction towards it i wasn't really in like super shocked but i yeah i was sad mm-hmm. and then a lot of parents came out um especially even um mayor gelbro mittler came out and said that um this was not the forum and children in the community should not be exposed to quote unquote politically charged books. What's your response to that? And do you think they're correct? Um, no, I don't think one, the term politically charged is something that I'm having an issue with. Um, the fact that to be Palestinian is inherently a political stance. Um, and a, and and how these, uh, how like, um, the opposition is sort of interpreting this as a anti-Semitic, uh, like stance. So, to say that children are who identify as Palestinian and to say that that's politically charged and a book of just about like educating on Palestinian history and what Palestine is, that doesn't scream political charge. It's mm-hmm. not screaming slogans or anything like that. Yeah. Um, or it's not even trying to promote an agenda of anything. It's just sort of say like this is what Palestinian culture was. Yeah. Now – there are arguments to be made about how resistance has become a part of the Palestinian culture over time, but that, from what I looked at the book, none of that was there. They're not screaming, like, yeah, again, like what I said, like slogans or anything like that. Yeah. So, and even then, kids are still exposed to politically charged ideas every single day. Kids from like the 90s, 80s, 70s, they weren't exposed to the same amount of political stuff that you see on social media, news, and that their parents are even telling them. Um, and to say, to make a statement and make a stance, children are seeing that. So whenever parents are making that stance, they're already making the situation politically charged. If there was no response, this would have just been a regular reading. This would have carried on as the way it goes. But the way the controversy erupted allowed for a, yeah, just a huge emergence of like, it made it political. Yeah. And also I think that kind of attack really ignores how any child any adult growing up in the West is exposed to real kind of inoculation against any kind of, of Palestinian narratives. Um, and I think one of the major um, critiques of the, the particular book by Goldberg Bashi is that it used the word intifada, which translates directly to resistance, doesn't, mm. isn't violent at all. Um, so yeah, I think it's definitely pretty pretty um, disingenuous to say that this book is is politically charged. Um, and then for our audience members who may be unaware, um, of course, like, I don't want to do a crash course in, like, apartheid 101 because this is a, such a complex issue and I don't want to minimize or, 
you know, remove important um, facts or ideas that, you know, people need to understand. But um, I think it'd be good just to kind of give a brief overview of the BDS movement um, and also why it is necessary and why Palestinians, um, why a, such a huge cross-section of Palestinian civil society has kind of called for this. Mm-hmm. So BDS, um, again, is boycott, divest, and sanction. So it's a three-pronged um, political uh, civil disobedience movement. Um, it originated against South African apartheid back in the 80s and the 70s. Um, and it was the way, and it was a very strong way in which South African apartheid was dismantled. Essentially, you boycott South African goods, you divest from South African companies, and then eventually states um, like like the state of New Jersey and then even like the federal state and state um, would impose sanctions on that country to stop apartheid, to dismantle it, and it worked. Um, so that movement has been used, in fact, by the Palestinians over a course of many resistance movements. Um, but this is the one uh, from that has like come to work so far. It is a nonviolent um, act of resistance, and it's using economic power to dismantle apartheid. And so what we mean by apartheid, we mean like abhorrent segregation. We mean policies that discriminately affect certain populations because of who they are. And they can range from apartheid roads, which are separate highways for different types of people, separate license plates, separate bus systems, um, checkpoints. All of those are forms of apartheid. And a lot of them have been copied from South African apartheid that we see in the Israeli apartheid system. Um, so BDS is the way in which those who aren't actively living, even it, like even if you're a Palestinian living within the West Bank or the Gaza Strip, like you can engage in BDS um, by boycotting Israeli goods. It's harder to do so there, but it's how we as Westerners, as Americans, as Europeans, wherever we are in the world, um, we can use our economic power because we have a lot of economic power and we can decide the shape of the global economy. So that's essentially what BDS is. And it came from South African uh, divestment. But it also there are other movements that also use it as well, like fossil fuel divestment on campuses around the world. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get into some of the kind of national pushback against BDS and also the state level pushback as well. Um, but with this new Highland Park resolution that is expected to um, be passed a week from today, actually, at the um, the borough council meeting on the 29th, I think that's at 7 o'clock p.m. Um, at Borough Hall in, in Highland Park. Um, but what are some of the impacts of this kind of local level anti-BDS um, resolution like the one that's being proposed in Highland Park? Uh, there's a there are a lot of constitutional implications. Uh, first off, one the right to protest, the right to boycott. Um, there have been there are interesting controversies within sort of this. It's typically a conservative position to be anti BDS, and so they'll say that corporations can donate whatever amount of money, and that equivalates to free speech. But as a consumer, I am not allowed to engage in the same practice of my money. So. That and I can't choose where to put that money. If I'm not spending it on certain um, companies because of my own preferences, I'm not allowed to do that as an individual or as even a movement, let alone as an individual. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has implications on the First Amendment. And then it also modifies, I think, hate crimes and hate legislation um, or legislation against hate um, in the sense that by equating anti Semitism to critiques of Israel, we have now made a a designation that is about a ethnicity, about a religious group, about discrimination against those people, and now merged it with criticism of a state. So now 
what if this logic is extended to other states of apartheid? What if it's other like problematic states? What if it's Saudi Arabia the next? Or if it's um, yeah, I'm, I'm, like Russia? Yeah. I don't know. I'm like I'm thinking of like other examples here, but all of these countries, like if we start expanding and start like mudding around what anti-Semitism means. To say that it's a critique of Israel, like Israel is a state and a government with a military, with with taxes. You have a – the Israelis can critique the Israeli government. Are they anti-Semitic too? Mm-hmm. No. You yeah. would, no one would ever say that. So why is it that when Palestinian activists who are usually at the forefront or at the – like at the, um, the brunt of the, the Israeli government's actions, they can't cr- criticize Israel in any sort of way or any meaningful way? Mm-hmm. So – those are the they're really dangerous implications, especially for uh, student activists, for activists just all around the world. It, yeah, it's a co-optation, I think, of anti-Semitic anti-Semitism, um, and using that as a call-out card to yeah. basically sort of say like, oh, okay, like um, you have like people like Donald Trump saying like Donald Trump is now saying that we're or the left is anti-Semitic because of this stuff because of its disloyalty to Israel. Yeah, that's. Like this is Donald Trump we're talking about. We no one like. Does anyone remember Charlottesville? Does anyone remember what he had said after the synagogue shootings? Like mm-hmm. these are. It yeah. It just it, there's a lot of like there, there's ulterior motives going on here. It's about si- ultimately silencing certain like political activists. Yeah, and then even beyond. I mean, of course, you know this has probably the most impacts um, on Palestinian organizers and activists, but even for Jewish people too, um, living in the U.S. to somehow now have your existence defined as whether or not you're allegiant to a Jewish state is slightly problematic, especially now that it's starting to get written into law. Um, Because there are a lot of Jewish people um, who do not support the state of Israel. Mm. Jewish Force of Peace is a growing organization. It has millions of members. There's a lot of Jewish um, people standing in solidarity with SJP who are part of SJP. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it is a very problematic to assume that every Jewish people um, bows down in allegiance to the state of Israel and to write that into law is, is in a, is a brave new world. I think when we're talking about this, mm-hmm. this, con- this, this issue. Um, but a lot of the resolutions that have been passed um, both at the local state and being proposed now at the national level um, include some type of ban or critique of the simple questioning of the state of Israel and its right to exist. And I think that this kind of question of existence is often misunderstood and misinterpreted. And I was wondering if you could speak more about how most organizers and international scholars really define a state's claim to existence and how this definition is often misinterpreted by a lot of pro-Israel groups. Yeah. So the, the, this, for a state to exist, one personally for me, I don't think that any state or any sort of entity with borders has a like, there's no right, there's no divine right that for a state to exist. Um, but when people are making claims that Israel has does not have a right to exist. It's talking about the state of Israel. It does not talk about Jewish people and their claim to the Holy Land and their historical claim to the Holy Land. It does not make any assumptions about that or any claims about that. It is about the apparatus of the state of Israel and how it was created. And there are, um, 
I'm forgetting the name of the group, but there's a Jewish, uh, there's a Jewish, uh, there's a sect of Judaism within um, uh, like Brooklyn or New York, but even in Israel that does not believe in the right for Israel to exist. Even and they're using religious sort of arguments to back that up. The Messiah has not returned, so Israel cannot exist. Um, and they side and stand in solidarity with the Palestinians. That does not mean. Um, and I think there's a lot of fear mongering around this question um, and a lot of like linkages to past uh, trauma to sort of like get people emotional. Um, it was, like when I'm tabling and stuff like that, people are saying that, oh, you, we want all Jewish people to leave the, like, like the Holy Land, which isn't really what we want. No one wants that. No one understands. We understand like Palestinians out of anybody know and understand the pain of displacement. And so to do that would mean huge amounts of violence, and it would not be productive at all. There was a point in time before the creation of the state of Israel that Jewish people, Arab people, and Christians, Muslims, people of all faiths and all backgrounds all live together. The, land, the Holy Land calls and is home to many different faiths. So to say and to make it just the as Netanyahu and um, the legislation like the Jew, uh, the Jewish nation state bill that was passed in like summer uh, 2018 stating that Israel is the home and the sole home for Jewish people and Jewish people alone. That's a statement that excludes a lot of individuals. And is it to say that Jewish people as a whole have claimed to the entirety of what is Israel or what is the Holy land or what is Palestine? Mm. That very good way to kind of counteract that. Um, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back um, after this and talk about um, some of the state-level um, anti-BDS legislation that's being proposed. Um, but this is Core of the Matter, the Public Affairs Forum for 93, The Core. Good evening, and welcome to Why I Smoke, the game show that lets smokers defend their addictive, life-threatening, and disgusting habit. I'm your host, Harry Healthy. Let's welcome our contestants, Brenda and Joe. Let's begin with Miss Yellow Teeth, Brenda. Why did you start smoking? Well, uh, I thought I needed to lose, like, 10 pounds. Cigarettes were a way to lose weight. Ah, yes. Drop those inches and increase your chances at getting cancer, premature wrinkles, and infertility. Let's move on to Joe. Why do you smoke? I look cool, man. And the chicks dig it. What you need are women who also smoke. That way their teeth are just as stained and black as yours. Well, sorry my date with death contestants, but we're out of time. I'm Harry Healthy for Why I Smoke. Need any more reasons to quit smoking? Visit njrebel.com. This message is brought to you by the Center for Addiction Studies and 90.3 The Core. Each year, 11,000 children in New Jersey are at risk, removed from their homes because of abuse or neglect. These children need caring volunteers to help make sure they are safe and find permanent homes. CASA for Children is the only organization that trains everyday citizens to speak as an independent voice in court for the best interests of these children. Visit casaforchildrennj.org to learn how you can become a CASA volunteer and make a difference in a child's life. That's casaforchildrennj.org. This message has been brought to you by CASA of New Jersey and 90.3 The Core. Oh my God, it's so cold. I can't believe people think global warming is a thing. <laughs> Liberal media. Are you talking about climate change? Global warming? Yeah. 
Global warming refers to the like, long-term trend of a rising average global temperature. Climate change is different. It refers to the changes in global climate, which result from increasing average global temperatures. It's like changes in precipitation patterns and increased droughts and heat waves and other extreme weather. Like blizzards? Exactly. Record snowstorms in the eastern U.S. this winter caused 47% of people to not recognize global warming as a leading factor of climate change. Blizzards and other severe weather are still a result of the increasing average global temperature. This message is brought to you by 90.3 The Core. And welcome back to Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum for 90.3 The Core. We're here tonight talking with Ahan Sikri of Students for Justice in Palestine at Rutgers um, about some different issues happening both in the local community and also on campus at Rutgers um, around the BDS movement and kind of the legal and um, administrative kind of actions occurring against this movement. Um, And we just kind of finished up talking about some of the recent action occurring in Highland Park around the P is for Palestine reading um, and also the proposed resolution um, that is a pretty much an anti-BDS resolution that is expected to be passed by the Borough Council um, just a week from today, actually, at the Borough Council meeting um, on the 29th at 7 o'clock. Um, but we're going to move on now to more state-level action occurring around BDS. Um, earlier this summer, New Jersey lawmakers introduced a bill that would amend the state's education law to require state public schools and universities to apply a widely contested redefinition of anti-Semitism that equates criticism of Israel with anti-Jewish discrimination. Included in the law's definition of anti-Semitism are the so-called three Ds related to Israel, demonizing Israel by using the symbols and images associated with classic anti-Semitism to characterize Israel or Israeli people, drawing comparisons of contemporary Israeli policy that of Nazis or blaming Israel for all interreligious or political tensions, applying a double standard to Israel by requiring behavior of Israel that is not expected or demanded of any other democratic nation, or focusing peace or human rights investigations only on Israel and delegitimizing Israel by denying the Jewish people their right for self-determination and denying Israel the right to exist, which we were talking about also um, before the break. Um, in responding to this to this proposed law, Palestine Legal, along with a coalition of over a dozen other organizations, signed a letter arguing that the redefinition is that, quote, the redefinition is so vague and broad that it could encompass any and all criticism of Israel and would put school administrators in the position of government censor. What is a double standard with regards to criticism of Israel and how and by whom will it be judged? How many additional countries would students and professors be required to criticize when they criticize Israel? And what degree or depth of criticism would they be required to make in order to avoid applying a, quote, double standard to Israel? In May, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a, ball in, signed a bill into law similar to the one proposed in the New Jersey Senate. South Carolina passed a version of the law in 2018. Similar legislation is pending in Congress and at the state level across the country. As of January of this year, 26 states have passed anti-BDS legislation and at least 13 other states have introduced and are actively considering passing similar laws. So, Ahan, how do you respond to most of these laws' definition of anti-Semitism um, that bases it on applying a, quote, double standard to Israel? 
Um, I think that this law creates a double standard uh, towards the Palestinians and their right to self-determination and their right to exist. Um, and I also think that applying that double standard, I think it's kind of, for lack of a better term, garbage. I think that uh, when you're doing an investigation of human rights violations, whenever that an institution like Amnesty or the United Nations, whatever organization is, they view it, as, they do it by a state by state level. If Saudi Arabia is violating human rights, then like we investigate the state of Saudi Arabia. If it's if there are human rights violations happening within Kashmir, we look at the parties that are in Kashmir. We look at so to say that there's a double standard against Israel, that Israel is being unfairly singled out. There are multiple and many investigations going around around the world of different human rights violations. The way that Israel does it is very specific to Israel. And so when we are making critiques about Israeli apartheid, it is about an apartheid system. And it's by and large, there there are systems that replicate and are very similar, like the uh, the apartheid wall in Israel, as well as the now being built Trump wall um, on the uh, southern border. But that though there are parallels, but like the entire apartheid apparatus and how it functions within the state of Israel is unique to the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. And to be our critique has to be unique to the state of Israel. If it, it was something that was brought up um, after the climate strike, we were approached by this and uh, approached, and they were called out in the Targum multiple times about how we weren't talking about other countries. And Students for Justice in Palestine is going to be talking about. Palestinians and their right to exist and Palestine and how Israel is interacting with Palestine. It's not going to be talking about Iran. It's not going to be talking about India. It's not going to be talking about Saudi Arabia, even though we do talk about those things as like individuals, as a group, as a community. We do bring up India and the parallels between Kashmir and the Kashmiri occupation and the Israeli occupation of Palestine. The, there are parallels that we make to bring more people in, but the goal in, of our organization and Palestinian advocates is to talk about Palestine. Mm -hmm. So to say that there's a double standard against Israel and that they're being unfairly singled out, I think is unfair. And I think, um, I think it's a projection. I think it honestly is a projection of sort of the double standard that has been created towards Palestinians. Um, we cannot, according to these laws, we cannot critique the, the, the state of Israel's right to exist, but nowhere can we advocate for the right of Palestinians to exist and what a Palestinian state would look like if that's what the ultimate solution is. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, and also another, because I, full disclosure, also responded to that op-ed in the Targum as well. <laughs> um, but another thing that I think comes out of these... Um, laws and also the groups advocating for these laws is that BDS unfairly singles out um, Israel. And I think to that, I would say personally, is that you name me one other example where a cross-section of civil society in a country has come out and asked for this. BDS didn't come from U.S. groups. It came from Palestinian groups asking mm -hmm. for solidarity and support. Um, so while, of course, there are human rights or human rights abuses um, around the world that may warrant a type of BDS movement, there has not been a similar call from a true cross-section of hundreds of different civil society organizations in Palestine really calling for solidarity from, from around the world. So to say that this is something that you know, the global community or the U.S. left is trying to kind of impose on Israel really isn't factually correct when it's coming from directly Palestinian organizations on the ground who are facing, you know, massive human rights violations. Um, and, you know, now we have a lot of groups standing in solidarity. Mm -hmm. um, so it really isn't 
the BDS movement, I don't think is, is, is singling out Israel. I think it's really, really just responding to a call for solidarity. Um, but why you can go off that. Yeah. I just want to add a little little bit point Um, like even there are even divestment campaigns that are being run that are not explicitly in the terms of BDS, but there are divestment campaigns against the state of Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. Um, code pink has been one of the lead organizers and sort of that of calling out the United States linkages to the, the, the United, the, the state of Saudi Arabia's crimes in Yemen. So like, when you're looking at these movements, it's sort of like, yes, BDS has developed in relation to the Palestinians. And so it's to say, and it goes back to sort of what we were talking about when we were talking about PDS for Palestine, it's to equate Palestinians to anti-Semitism and to being Palestinian as to be anti-Semitic, which I think is, I think it's, it's, un, it's unfair and it's just wrong. Yeah. And do you think that because, you know, the U.S. is probably the most tied up to Israel out of any other country in the world. Do you think um, that kind of amplifies the backlash? And, and what do you see as kind of the problematic relationships? Because, of course, there are many. So you can just kind of highlight a few. Um, yeah. So there are. And like, so what Israel means to the state of the United States of America is when you, you'll hear it in even the presidential debates that you and, and I've been hearing it for quite some time, even when I wasn't an, uh, a Palestinian activist, was that. Israel is the only ally that we have within the region. Um, and that's the framing that goes around it. But if you look into the specifics of weapon transactions and sort of defense holdings, there is a concerted amount of money that is being made from the selling and distributing of weapons from the state of Israel. A lot of foreign nations, not just the United States, but the United Kingdom and NATO allies, park their weapons in Israel. And then when they need to take action, let's say recently in Turkey, they move. If it's in Saudi Arabia, they move. So, like, that's the function of the state of Israel as a strategic, as a defense defense strategy. Mm -hmm. So it plays into sort of creating that tension within the Middle East that allows for the exploitation and sort of that disruption that has been and the imperialist like disruption of the United States that has been there for like decades at this point. So that's the one of like that's one of the ways in certain terms of a problematic relationship. Um, and now it's because of these economic and defense ties that are now being tied up, there has now become a political and sort of social religious uh, justification for that relationship. Um, evangelical Christians have made themselves quite clear in sort of their allyship with Israel, but in a very exploitative manner. Um, and so in the sense that like once once all the Jewish people return to Israel, judgment day comes and Jesus comes back down and sort of says, okay, to all the Jewish people that, hey, uh, convert to Christianity or perish. Like that's something that evangelical Christians and evangelical like like politicians have said in response to the state of Israel. I think there was a one case um, in one of the deep south states of a woman like saying that in the state legislature. Um, and to say that like yeah, like that's essentially like the multitude of problematic relationships with the state of Israel that the United States has. And I mean you we see it in the debates, we see it in the, the political conversation now. The mention of Israel is very, very like scary. Like mm-hmm. you can't mention it yeah. at all. If you if, if there's any question about the state of Israel, then there's a huge amount of backlash from it. Yeah. So that um I think the you know in I think it it's just the, like the role in which like and I, I want to be very careful with my words here because 
it's not about sort of like there's the anti-Semitic lie that Jewish people have this dual loyalty to like the United States and Israel and sort of they're controlling all the money behind the flow. That's not the, the case. Yeah. That has nothing to do with Judaism or Jewish people. But there are moneyed interests that are protecting that relationship. And it doesn't have to be Jewish people. It can be people like Tony Blair. It can be people like Modi. It can be people like Donald Trump mm-hmm. and, the, and their allies and sort of who is like, yeah, because – We've examined, I think, even in the absence of the state of Israel, that war for the longest time has just been a profiteering motive. Yeah. So there's money to be made by conflict. And if the conflict continues, then there's more money to be made. Dick Cheney is invested like in the Sea of Galilee. Like, yeah. There are parallels that we're, we're seeing here. And there's, argue, there's an argument to be made that the Israeli economy is now one that is really based off of the fact that it can wage war relentlessly um, mm-hmm. without any kind of check on it. Um, a lot of... Israeli contractors really just kind of use their ability to to wage war on Palestinians as kind of like a showroom for other military contractors. Um, yeah. It's been well established. Is the Israeli economy actually has risen at times of of Palestinian resistance and the subsequent backlash from the Israeli state. Um, so you can see how there is a clear profit motive. Um, to continue this kind of assault on on black and brown bodies in the Palestinian region. Um, yeah, to yeah. add on that even more, like there was a $3 billion, contra- $3 billion contract secured with the European Union recently about like sort of Israeli's new weapons technologies. Um, the cybersecurity industry within Israel is one of the largest, is the largest in the world. And it's where a lot of people from around the world, states, governments, private military corporations, all of them are coming and flocking over there to get the the latest and greatest in cybersecurity technology. Mm-hmm. So that that is essentially one of the main exports of Israel, apart yeah. from others. And also an, another relationship that often has, has gotten talked about more recently, but is the relationship with the IDF and U.S. police forces, mm-hmm. particularly in black and brown communities in Chicago and New York. Um, Israel will hold trainings either at, in the Israeli state or they will come to the U.S. and hold trainings um, using very similar tactics. Trump, a few weeks back, famously said um, to border agents to shoot them in the legs, similar to how um, the IDF aims for the legs of Palestinians as they approach um, the borders in Gaza and the West Bank. Um, So obviously, definitely some very clear problematic links. um, That is really the basis for BDS to try to sever those links and make sure that, you know, those those human rights atrocities are addressed. Um, And while the spreading of this type of anti-BDS legislation has obviously brought more recognition and attention to the Palestinian cause, do you feel concerned that now over half of the states in the U.S. now have some type of anti-BDS legislation on the books? Um, I'm concerned, but also, uh, if this is the term, the Streisand effect, um, sort of like... The more that you try to suppress something and hide something, the more it catches on. Um, And I think that a lot of people are waking up. I actually just got – I was just notified by a friend of mine that there was a seminar and essentially that they were talking about Fordham SJP. And sort of like the the things that they were dealing with on their campus and the silencing of their uh, their activists and that that room of students all said that like they have the right to make that critique. They may not agree with that critique, but they have the right in the United States to make that critique as as just people who live here, pay taxes and contribute to the society. So to say that, um, I, but I, I will say also that I am concerned. Um, it is power that the state can draw in and it can be weaponized against uh, p- uh, activists and just people in general. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it's been weaponized before, and it's essentially a scare. It, it's it's to basically instill fear. Um, it's to instill fear into those activists to not come out of the woodworks, to not come on a show like this, to not speak their thoughts and make that critique. Because when you make that critique of the state of Israel, people resonate with it. Um, and that is just like something that Zionist organizations or pro-Israeli organizations just can't deal with. They have to sort of skirt around that, obscure that part of the conflict or that part part of the dialogue uh, if there i think that there's no dialogue at this point mm-hmm. i think it's ultimately zionists and pro-israeli organizations that are supporting anti-bds legislation like this and politicians are trying to silence the conversation so that they continue on as the way things were um but change is necessary and i think that no matter what law is put into place i think the acts of resistance and the resistance will continue to keep forward because there's no other choice the palestinians despite everything that they have gone through have not have no choice they cannot give up so it is up to us in standing solidarity with them to also keep hope alive mm-hmm. and then Another kind of thread, I think, that runs through a lot of these laws um, is the kind of connection between the rising tides of Islamophobia and anti-Arab racism um, around the world. How do you think that these kinds of laws are situated within this really very scary growing global movement? Um, yeah, no, it is It is actually quite terrifying um, about how, and yeah, it's back to that sort of like kind of double standard question, sort of like there's a redefinition of anti-Semitism that is supposed to, in theory, protect Jewish people. But in fact, it doesn't make any sort of protections for uh, Jewish people who are trying to pray or trying to, it doesn't make any protections of that. And at the same time, weaponizes the state, weaponizes the arms and the the factions of uh, whatever, whatever the state is, federal or local, um, against those who advocate for Palestine, and typically those are people who are either Muslim or Arab. Um, it's a large portion, um, but even I, like, who doesn't fall into either of those camps, that it's still, like, it's still contributing to that. And I think that maybe not in the sense of anti-BDS, but sort of, like, this is, uh, these relationships to the state of Israel, you can view it as almost sort of like a pincer movement in terms of, like, let's say we look at India and the relationship that India has been forming with Israel and the United States that has been formed with Israel. Sort of, like, now... There, India has been dealing with a nationalist, Hindu nationalist movement that has been directed against Muslims that are living within India and also the state of Pakistan itself. And so they're using the Zionist rhetoric. They're using, when you were talking about the trainings and the facilities and stuff like that, they are using that technology and those techniques against Pakistanis, against Muslims within the area, deporting them, putting them in cages in the same way that Trump is, in the same way that Israel is. So... Th- this is happening around the world, um, and it's become an excuse for uh, – it's a, it's a common political tactic to sort of just say that there, there's the enemy. That's the person who did everything wrong. They're monsters. They're evil, um, and that essentially creates a rallying flag for individuals. It makes them angry, agitated, and it gets them to go and essentially attack those individuals, and we see that with the New Zealand shooting. We see that in sort of – other acts of violence against Muslim against Muslims within the just within the entire world. Mm-hmm. So it, it yeah it becomes an excuse um, yeah. I think to be pro-Israeli um, and sort of use that as a cover for Islamophobia is just um, yeah and, just and I and scary. I think too an, another I think the reason I think one of the major reasons why these types of laws oftentimes don't get much pushback when it comes to state legislatures is the fact that the people who will be inevitably affected 
by these laws are people in black and brown bodies, people who are Muslim, people who are Arab. Um, so I think you can definitely see just kind of the blatant Islamophobia that comes with how these laws get passed. Um, so it's definitely something that we really can't ignore. You want to say something yeah. to him? And even then, it, it, these laws also profile like people who call, who find themselves on the Jewish left. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. People who go against that um, and say like now they are deemed anti-Semitic and they are also profiled. Even in the state of Israel, there was a activists that were consistently profiled because of their critiques of Israel, um, and they happened to be Israeli. They were born and raised in Israel, and they raised critiques about it. And they are also punished in the same way that Arabs or Palestinians are uh, punished. So it's like. It doesn't matter, like, it, it, it's a, that famous quote, like, they, I didn't stand up for those that uh, came before me, and mm-hmm. so now they've come after me. Uh, there's the entire list of yeah. that. It, uh, that's essentially, it's a slippery slope. Yeah, definitely. Um, we're going to c- come back after this short break talking more about anti-BDS action at the university level, specifically at Rutgers. Um, but this is core of the matter. We're talking with Ahan Sikri of Students for Justice in Palestine. This is the Public Affairs Forum for 90.3, the court. I'll see you tomorrow. Yo, where you heading, little lady? Um, excuse me? Give me your backpack or you're gonna get hurt. Somebody help! There's no one around to hear you. In 2012 alone, more than 100 murders, 16,000 assaults, and 10,000 forcible sexual assaults were reported on college campuses. Reduce your chances of being a crime victim by taking reasonable precautions, including... Remain alert and aware of people and circumstances around you, walk in groups when possible, and immediately report suspicious activity to local law enforcement. This message is brought to you by 90.3 The Core. And welcome back to Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum for 90.3 The Core. We're here with Ahan Sikri of Students for Justice in Palestine at Rutgers um, discussing, we've kind of moved through a a variety of different topics. We've kind of started with um, the Peace for Palestine meeting in Highland Park that occurred on Sunday, the protests against it, um, the upcoming anti-BDS resolution that will be um, expected to pass by the Highland Park Borough Council a week from today, um, and also kind of the larger national and state level um, actions against the BDS movement. And we're going to continue on Um, discussing kind of anti-BDS action occurring at the university level, um, particularly here at Rutgers. And last week, Ed Pinkleton of The Guardian uncovered emails from the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, which reveal the concerted effort of far-right politicians from across the U.S. um, working to stifle debate over Israel and silence Palestinian voices. Um, In one email thread uncovered by a FOIA request, um, Randy Fine, a Republican lawmaker from Florida who was instrumental in passing the first law to outright ban a very um, controversial definition of anti-Semitism in public schools. And Fine writes in the email that, Anti-Semitism, whether acts by students, administrators, or faculty 
policies and procedures, club organizations, etc., will be treated identically as how racism is treated. Students for Justice in Palestine is now treated the same way as the Ku Klux Klan, as they should be. The U.S. Department of Education, Office for Civil Rights, or the OCR, has affirmed in four separate cases that expression of political viewpoints does not, standing alone, give rise to actionable harassment under federal anti-discrimination law simply because some may find it offensive. However, recent changes at the Department of Education, particularly the appointment of Kenneth Marcus as the head of the OCR, seems to put the department's legacy of free speech protection at great risk. One of Marcus's first acts in office was to reopen the Title VI case filed by the Zionist Organization of America against Rutgers, a case which the OCR closed in 2014 after a three-year investigation cleared the University of Allegations that it had tolerated a climate of anti-Semitism. In reopening the investigation, Marcus noted that the definition of anti-Semitism in, in use by OCR would be the one used by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, which states that manifestations of anti-Semitism might include, quote, the targeting of the state of Israel conceived as a Jewish collectivity. In this clip from the Center for Constitutional Rights, we hear both students and scholars from across the U.S. discuss the backlash they have experienced for engaging in Palestinian activism on their campuses. The CCR and Palestine Legal published a groundbreaking report in 2015 called The Palestine Exception to Free Speech, a movement under attack in the U.S., which documents these cases and many others in academic institutions around the country. And we'll try to put that in the show notes on our Spotify as well. Um, but I think this is a really interesting clip that kind of depicts um, both teachers and student organizers um, and their backlash that they've faced um, as a result of their work. Um, so this is from, again, Center for Constitutional Rights and the Palestine Legal Association. As an activist with Students for Justice in Palestine at NYU, I've been called many things, including a self-hating Jew, anti-Semitic. I was called a member of Al-Qaeda. I was called a terrorist. I was called many racial slurs. After the American Studies Association passed the resolution to support the academic boycott of Israeli universities, we were the subject of a tsunami of onslaughts. My career was destroyed because of gross mischaracterizations of my tweets critical of the Israeli government. I lost my home, I lost my income. Unfortunately, despite all the human rights work we did at NYU, a lot of us, myself included, feel like publicly we have to hide this activism because of these rumors and these accusations that have been leveled against us. I edited my resume uh, to remove SJP. I made sure it wasn't on my LinkedIn. I tried to limit how much of it was on Facebook. It did have the effect of um, making students uh, hesitant to join SJP or to support Palestine solidarity work. Administration at Loyola often subjected members of students who were just in Palestine to FBI-style interrogations, which lasted hours. An administrator, usually some sort of middle-tier bureaucrat, who smiles at us and tells us, um, this isn't about us, but it's just standard policy. Even though 
we all organize with different groups and I've never experienced that with those groups. It was actually my involvement with SJP that led me to being denied from my homeland, Palestine, by Israel. They forced us to pay a large sum of money for security guards, which were completely unnecessary. I actually haven't heard of any other group that had to have security at every single event that they host. You go to an SJP event uh, because the administration, I think, is so nervous about what's going to happen. You have to go through a metal detector. You have to, well, first you have to, re you have to sign up in advance and reserve a spot online. Then you have to go through a security check. I mean, it's like you're at Kennedy Airport. No other club in College of Staten Island was, has ever been treated that way, ever. I always imagined college to be that one space that you are allowed to grow and thrive in academia and activism, kind of figure out, you know, who you are and who you and what you stand for. So when we all, you know, were working towards what we stood for and then we're being isolated for it, it was very shocking because that was, you know, the complete opposite of what I imagined a university campus would be like. And that was the Palestine exception to free speech, um, a movement under attack in the U.S., um, a video created by the Center for Constitutional Rights and Palestine Legal. Um, so kind of going back to this OCR investigation that was reopened um, by the Trump administration into Rutgers, some members of SJP at Rutgers were obviously implicated and subsequently cleared by any wrongdoing um, by the OCR. What was your reaction to the announcement that this case would be reopened? Hmm. So interesting thing about the initial case was that it says that Rutgers, it names Rutgers SJP, but the problem was the incident that they were referring to, um, which was a event um, where essentially they were ticketing, it was essentially wasn't Rutgers SJP, it was an organization called Becca at the time. So Rutgers SJP didn't exist. Um, we, as the current members of SJP, were not on campus. We were still, it was like 2014. Yeah. We were in high school. Yeah. So now they have opened up this investigation into us and it did scare us like it did like trying to like we are students still we still have families we still have parents to explain what we're doing on thursday nights <laughs> like what are we trying to figure out is that like yeah oh yeah the federal the federal government is investigating us for uh, anti-semitism and hate speech um yeah it is scary and has prevented us from taking sort of the bolder actions but at the same time we also knew um, through our allies, through Palestine Legal as well, we've had communications with them as well, that like there was no teeth to this case. Um, unless we did, which is something that wasn't even possible, if we did something explicitly stupid um, and anti-Semitic, there would be no way that this case could ever go through. But it's the point of the case from our interpretation was that we that essentially they're just trying to scare us and mm -hmm. trying to basically not make a, allow us to do actions or take necessary steps. So yeah, that was uh, our reaction to it. It was initially scary, but again, like it, it I, I thought it was ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> and besides this case, um, are there other kinds of administrative backlash um, that SGP has faced besides just this kind of high profile federal investigation? Um, so yeah, there has been in terms of uh, approval um, for funding, um, even from like RUSA and other things. There's, yeah, there's a list of organizations that essentially like is on a like 
a quote unquote blacklist. I won't even call it that. Essentially, they get higher profile like scrutiny on certain things. So like if SJP wants to do an action that or even when USAS was an organization, like this just applies to all activism at this point, but they would be under more scrutiny in terms of how funding would get appropriated to them. Zionist, Zionist organizations on campus never got that scrutiny, um, even though their goals are very explicitly political. They're advocating for the state of Israel. Yeah. Um, and also probably get way more funding from their national chapters as well than anybody else in a Palestinian group. As well. And it's, it's less so on the administrative side, but sort of like individual private organizations that have a lot of power within the United States, uh, organizations like Canary Mission that provide a lot of fear towards just getting people involved. Um, as the clip had shown that basically like, yeah, like people are going to tell you like awful things to your face when I'm tabling on the involvement fair a while back, some guy just came up to me and says, oh, you're with, uh, so you boycott Israel. So I was like, oh, so you're with Hamas. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, you've met me for two seconds. Um, assumed something completely about me without even having a conversation. So it, the point is not about a dialogue or it's not about uh, any of that. It's about shutting down conversation and painting people as enemies. Yeah. Um, have you noticed, I mean, it's only been three, almost now four years for you here at Rutgers, but have you noticed any kind of changes with the level of acceptance or and or exclusion um, here at Rutgers? Um, definitely. I've seen both. Um I've seen certain organizations, especially like I was not expecting this. Uh, we've had trouble throughout the other years while we've been organizing of getting certain organizations, uh, cultural organizations to participate. Um, but we found incredible solidarity with the environment, environmental justice movement on campus. Um, we did not expect that. We, um, in terms of their politics, uh, it, we, we got people who were talking about banning plastic straws and we just started talking to them about. Uh, like Israeli apartheid and anti-colonialism and anti-imperialism, um, that's a huge shift for individuals. And when you present things in a very clear manner, um, I think it's it's both a level of – I think a lot of these issues don't affect certain populations, so they can kind of just ignore it. But when you do bring it up to them and you clarify it in a very like way, like even people who told me that they were raised Zionist, and I framed the conversation – and we, I mean we framed the conversation in the sense that our ultimate goal is a free democratic state for all people within the Holy Land – when you frame it in that way, it dismantles a lot of their own claims, and then they come to accept the other things. They come to understand BDS. They come to understand the plight of the Palestinians and relation into the Jewish people because they're Palestinian Jewish people that have also are being subjugated to by the state of Israel. Yeah, I've definitely. It was really inspiring to see those kinds of changes happen after we had a we held the divestment panel because um, I'm you know for all our audience members I am part of the Central Jersey Climate Coalition and we held a panel on divestment including SJP um, and other um, activists working around prison divestment and also former activists from South Africa apartheid and also fossil fuel divestment and it seemed like there was a really good reception for the Palestinian cause people I think saw the connections um, and yeah I think that. That's just kind of the work that we have to kind of keep doing. Um, but it is really inspiring to see. And of course, you know, that doesn't ignore the still high level of Zionist organizations that are continuing their work um, and continuing to try to silence Palestinian voices. Um, but definitely, I noticed some changes as well. Are there any um, upcoming events or programs that you want to kind of shout out um, that SJP is doing? Um, not, nothing like set in stone, but I do want to sort of plug in that we are planning a Know Your Rights workshop uh, soon with Palestine Legal in the like within the month or two. Nice. Um, so I will get back to you on a date on that, but just keep.
things that we discussed today more in depth from a legal perspective and how as an individual activist or a person who is just getting into activism or someone who's just scared um, about sort of like these like legal forces that are like trying to come after us, like they will illuminate and sort of say like, no, you are protected by law. There's no way. And there are people who are out there to protect, like that will be there to protect you in organizations. So that's coming up. Um, I will get back to you on that date, but yeah, that's about it uh, for now. Thank you so much. And I'm sure people can go to the SJP Facebook page and find that information out when the date gets announced. Yeah, follow us. Actually, our Facebook page is not as recently updated as our Instagram. Our Instagram is the most. uh, SJP, Rutgers, NB. Mm -hmm. Um, Same thing on our Twitter as well. Follow both of those. And... uh, yeah, no, keep in touch because, like, yeah, that's what we'll be posting a lot of the uh, events that will be coming up within the, the next couple of months as well as the next semester. Yeah, I can attest SJP has a, an amazing Twitter and Instagram, yeah, from, do. <laughs> objectively speaking. <laughs> um, but, Ahan, thank you so much for coming on the program. Um, definitely come back anytime. I think this is a really um, enlightening conversation for our audience members. Um, and for anyone out there who has an issue or an organization they'd like to talk about on the air, um, you can email us at publicaffairs at thecore.fm. This has been Core of the Matter, the public affairs forum for 90.3 The Core.